know, I, I get up early. Uh, I have I have two young kids, and they oftentimes uh, require getting up very early. So I'm great. I'm grateful for that. Um, and and then I just do um, do a little bit every day. Uh, so I have you know various um, you know tools and tactics I use to to manage time, and you know I'm always always learning how best to do that. Uh, one of the things I have learned, however, um, is just to lead with creativity and follow creativity. Uh, as we you know, talked about at the beginning of this conversation, uh, I feel like I fell backwards into practical theology. I was just chasing questions. Mm-hmm. It wasn't particularly strategic. It wasn't particularly intentional. Um, I was just chasing questions and good conversations, and I feel like I fell backwards into that. Welcome to the With Sayada podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Belonging and Understanding. The podcast that brings to you stories of lived experience that you might not otherwise encounter. This is a podcast that encourages you to cultivate belonging and understand others. I'm your host, author and coach Sayada Zaidi, and every episode I'll be asking a new guest to share their story. Dr. Dustin Davis Benack joined Balias George's Truett Theological Seminary in the fall of 2020 as a visiting assistant professor of practical theology. He also serves as co-director for the Programme for the Future Church with Angela Gorwell. Prior to coming to Baylor, he was a postdoctoral associate at Duke Divinity School and worked with Kate Bowler and the Everything Happens Project. Dr. Binak works at the intersection of practical theology and organizational theory to understand and explore the organizational ecology that supports communities of faith during times of transition and uncertainty. A regular writer for academic and popular audiences, his co-edited volume, Crisis in Care, Meditations on Faith and Philanthropy, is a must-read. Today, I have the big, big pleasure to be speaking with Dustin Benick. And he is a professor of practical theology, a consultant, and also has a real interest in organizations. And that, I think, was the thing that really kind of prompted me to to reach out to Dustin. Um, I would love to ask you, how did you get into this kind of like amazing, rich world of practical theology? <laughs> right. Well, thank you, Sita. It's so good to be here. And uh, I'm just really looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, so I um, found my way into practical theology uh, by chasing questions. Uh, so I uh, intellectually was interested in asking questions about um, initially education, formation, leadership, um, and as a person of person of faith, I was interested in thinking within my particular religious tradition about how all those related together. Uh, so I thought I was trying to do work at what I called theology and institutions. I recognize on the one hand that there was um, a certain tradition of reflection um, about how people of faith are formed and flourished. And on the other hand, I recognize through my lived experience that the institutions I and we collectively inhabit shaped us in various ways. 
However, I didn't know, didn't was interested in exploring the various intersection between what a religious tradition says and the various social spaces we explore. Uh, so over a series of years and a series of conversation partners and colleagues, I began to recognize that there was this interesting unexplored intersection at the intersection, what I came to recognize as practical theology and organizational theory. Practical theology on the one hand offers descriptive contextual accounts of faith, formation, leadership, and education. And organizational theory on the other hand offers this robust tradition of empirical research on the lived experience of organizations and communities. However, I recognize that they oftentimes don't connect and talk to one another. Like separate silos and separate disciplines, they not only do not often intersect, but they're actually suspicious of each other. Practical theologians think org theory uh, is uh, overly, um, they're suspicious of the business and management literature. Um, and, and org theorists, on the other hand, think um, practical theologians and religious organizations are not worthy of study. So I began to think about how do I bridge that gap how do I be a translator from different communities and different discourses? And how can I contribute to the formation of people of faith in and through organizations they serve? Mm. So that's a, just a quick intro. I'm happy to share more. I love that because really you're speaking my language, you know, and, mm. and even it. the way that you kind of like packaged it by saying you ask questions. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that being curious and literally kind of like seeing something and saying, well, what is it about that? And what is it about this? And then trying to kind of navigate your way through is just a, a wonderful way of looking at life rather than seeing problems and challenges, which are there. But it's just the way that you describe that, which I found really, really quite kind of warming. That's good. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And, and maybe the other thing I'll, I'll add, um, just given the nature of our conversation, is that uh, that my journey through these various intersections emerged in conversation with individuals and communities. Uh, I was, was fortunate shortly after finishing an undergraduate degree in theology um, that I had an opportunity to support a, um, an author who was working on, on a book project. Um, and one of the things this, this mentor and author asked me to do was to go out and interview various leaders in, community, in communities of faith and ask them about the challenges they face and how they were responding to them. So I talked to people like Paul Gordon Chandler um, in Cairo, Egypt, amid the, um, the Egyptian uprising and revolution around 20, 2011. I talked to Peter Story, who was Nelson Mandela's um, chaplain on Robben Island during apartheid South Africa. I talked to um, ordinary people of faith like um, Keith Fitzhu, who uh, was playing for the New York Jets and then declined an offer to return to the New York Jets in order to serve and support his family in a more stable way. Um, I talked to other people who were activists and organizers. And through those conversations, I realized that there was a conversational methodology. I didn't know it at the time, but that was a form of methodology that practical theologians have practiced for a long time, namely qualitative research and um, ethnographic inquiry. Uh, so for me, conversations have been a key part of this exploration of the intersection of these various religious traditions and the lived realities of people and organizations. Mm, I, I love that. And I love that you spoke to lots of different people just to kind of get an essence of what is going on, because I think 
that's how we get the best out of humanity rather than just right. kind of focusing into one or one group or just that diversity that you described is just so rich. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I benefited immensely. Yeah. And I, I'd love to know, you mentioned a book. So is there anywhere where we can find this book that you kind of did all that research for? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, that book is still in progress. However, what that book did and that project did is it started me on an intellectual trajectory um, where I recognized um, in order to understand the complexities of people of faith and their communities, specifically in relation to the various institutions and organizations they serve, the best way to get at that is to ask them, to interview them, to go see them in practice. Um, So several years later, I began my own book project interviewing uh, faith leaders and communities in the Pacific Northwest, uh, which is a region of the United States that largely is comprised of Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. Um, And it's a context where religious organizations occupy a marginal social position on one hand, um, and there's also a history of religious entrepreneurship on the other. Uh, So I began to have conversations with people about the organizational structures and um, systems of belonging that enable them to adapt to uncertainty. Uh, That book will come out next year um, with Baylor University Press as Adaptive Church. Um, And then the second book that recently came out July 1 with Withenstock is called Crisis and Care Meditations on Faith and Philanthropy. And that continues this contextual collaborative exploration of the conditions that enable people of faith to adapt to uncertainty. Mm, I love that. And and I can't wait to read the, the book that's coming out next year, because as you were describing it, you took me to um, um, Utah. And, and I'll tell you why, because I, I spent mm-hmm. a lot of time kind of traveling to, to California and, and a okay. couple of events that I attended were in Sundance, which is, mm-hmm. you know, Robert Redford's Ranch, which is in Utah. Um, and it was the first time that I met um kind of such strong collaboration between a faith community, which is the Jehovah's Witness and entrepreneurship. And just to see the way that it had been structured for me on the outside, it was just really quite inspiring and thinking, you know what, it can be done. Like Mm -hmm. you don't have to feel that you're compromising your values. And because in Islam, there's a really strong tradition of entrepreneurship, which I think has been lost and is now starting to come back. Um, but just to see it working within the world that we're kind of currently navigating was just right. kind of quite inspiring. So I can't wait to read your book and find out more about Thank different Thank religious you. communities doing that. Yeah. And it's hopeful, right? Like when you see this collaboration at play, it's really hopeful because you see uh, you see these religious communities that recognize they don't uh, they don't need to be scared of a broader popular um, populace. And also you see. Uh, these community organizations recognizing that religious organizations can be meaningful partners, that we really are better together. Uh, so I see it as profoundly hopeful. Um, and that's one of the, the my hopes for emerging out of this season of rupture is that we'll figure out how to collaborate more together because we recognize we need it more than ever. Mm. There's a there's a good friend of mine who I also interviewed um, on this podcast called Jesse Harless. And uh, I was attending, um, gosh, a resilience training that he was leading a, a couple of weeks ago. And it was just one line that he said, which was so profound for me. And he said, you cannot do your purpose alone. That's good. 
And it was just such a reminder of of why we need to work together. So your description of collaboration, I think, is so key. Um, and I also believe, you know, God didn't make us to kind of like work on our projects on, alone and be alone and all of these things. We've got to yes. kind of support each other. So I love what you're describing. No, thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I'd love to touch a little bit on the crisis in care book, because I think um, particularly at the moment in that, you know, some countries are coming out of the pandemic, some countries are going back into um, lockdown and things there there must be some kind of like lessons and some learnings that you had in, in writing that that would be of benefit to the listeners yeah well thank you i appreciate that and i'll just note that it was a richly collaborative project uh, i co-edited it with my friend and colleague aaron weber johnson uh, who is a consultant with an or a group called uh the vandersaw collective uh, so we uh, partnered together in the early stages of the pandemic uh, to discern the forms of organization, um, witness, and new imagination that was emerging, particularly around questions of faith, fundraising, and philanthropy. Mm. Uh, one of the things we saw in at least the communities of faith we serve and study is that matters of finance became the limit of the horizon of what so many individuals and organizations could imagine. They couldn't explore and imagine how to adapt and innovate beyond what they could fund. So we sensed really that there was deep. this, what'd you say? That's really deep, you know, mm. like in that your limit is set by what you're able right. to see. Right, 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 right. Uh, and, and our sense though, and this is the bet that we made, is that there was also new things emerging, new possibilities uh, that were emerging in this moment that weren't possible before. Uh, so what we did so you did is we gathered a group of, of friends and colleagues around a set of questions. Uh, we said something is happening in this moment and we need you to help us discern together what is possible in this moment. Uh, so we intentionally invited folks from what we call the ecclesial ecology. Uh, so rather than inviting individuals to contribute just from congregations or just from theological schools or just from nonprofits, we invited folks from across that ecology. We had pastors and activists and nonprofit leaders. We had people who were innovating within existing educational institutions and at the margins. And we invited them to write out of their lived experience and to attend to what's possible in this moment. Um, and I'll tell you, Sayida, what, what emerged was uh, were far more beautiful and compelling than we could ever imagine. Uh, it demonstrated for us how our communities of faith are at once more beautiful adaptive and fragile than we could ever have imagined. Uh, it was a project that took us to the depths of grief and loss and crisis, uh, but also invited us to imagine the expansive possibilities of this moment. It's not to suggest that we are without limits. Rather, the book taught us that it's precisely in recognizing our limits and recognizing our creatureliness that we can come to explore where crisis and care meet and innovate in creative and faithful ways. Oh my gosh, you just moved me to places that I never imagined. And I'm just mm -hmm. like, you know, I, I so um, admire and respect you for doing the work that you're doing. And I just wish I could have been a fly on the wall of everything that you've described, because mm -hmm. it just sounds like such a, a rich, invigorating experience. And 
And sometimes, you know, it is really important to go to both ends of the spectrum of emotions in order to be able to have the growth that is necessary to kind of emerge on the other side, you know? That's right. That's right. I mean, as a practical theologian, I think about this as a, as a conjunctive imagination. Uh, and this is, uh, this is language I'm borrowing from, um, from Luke Powery, who's the current dean of, of Duke Chapel. Uh, he talks about this conjunctive imagination mm. that in place of kind of these either or dichotomies that we so oftentimes um, inhabit, uh, it's either crisis or care. Uh, it's either, either open or close. Um, you know, it's either this or that, that there's actually a possibility of conjunction. And it's this conjunctive imagination that we try to explore here where it's really crisis and care in order to understand uh, the depth and gravity of this moment um, and possibility of it. You have to see both. Mm. You know, I think about this, like the twin movement of bicycle pedals, the upstroke and downstroke. And they're actually conjoined. They're not separate practices. They're not separate movements. They're conjunctive. They're joined together. Um, so in this work and in much of my broader work, I'm trying to explore a conjunctive imagination to see what's possible uh, for individuals, for leaders, and for communities of faith. Mm, I really like this because it's taking me to the kind of appreciative inquiry uh, facilitator in me and the, the kind of concept of and or. It's not either. Right. That's it's right. kind of like both, you know, and, and you can have um, both existing in in the same space. But because when you resist one or the other, I think it creates mm -hmm. a tension that's not necessarily helpful. And so even the title of the book, Crisis and Care, right. you know, is, is quite impactful. Mm, that's good. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and just to, to talk a little bit more about the volume, if I may. You know, one of the one of the beautiful things about it was actually the stories. Uh, we uh, we intentionally invited people to write from write from their experience. You know, we invited uh, what we'll call practice oriented academics uh, and thoughtful practitioners to write together, and uh, we invited them to write out of their the ordinary particular experience. So we had somebody like Patrick Reyes writing um, about memories of survival that comes from his grandma's table. Uh, we had somebody like Sunia Gibbs writing uh, about her work as an active, an activist, an artist, and a community leader and a pastor, describing how everything's an experiment. Uh, we had somebody like Kevin Kim Wright, who works as um, a in a nonprofit, um, as an administrator and grant leader, and he described how he's learned to receive what he calls the generosity of death, uh, where we receive the possibilities of death and dying for our organizations as an invitation to new life. So time and time again, Sadia, it was just the stories that gave new imagination, new possibilities. That's just wonderful. And I have to say, I just want to kind of like put a little marker in this because the biggest <laughs> gift that I have received from this conversation is how you have unpacked the book. Mm. And I'm going to be ordering it as soon as we've finished because now I just feel like a, a sense of, FOMO because I haven't read it already. <laughs> oh, well, that's so kind. I look forward to hearing what you think. Absolutely. I'd love to know because it seems as if the, the questions that you asked were really quite significant in the way that the book kind of like unraveled. Um, mm. Are the questions included in the book or if they're not, how can we find out what they are? Uh, yes, they are included in the book. And, and in, the event, uh, in the event that folks 
um, aren't aren't able to grab it right away, uh, I may just I may just read them. Would that be okay for you, Sydney? Please, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let me let me pull this out. So we we talked about the power of questions. Uh, and this is drawing on you know some of the work that that Peter Block has done. Um, and as you probably know, as well as anybody, you know, Peter Block um, is not uh, not a person of faith, but he is a remarkable um, commentator and understander of local communities and the structure of belonging. Um, in many ways, I think he offers uh, a thicker, more accurate description of what community actually looks like and takes to form uh, than um, many other accounts that I've read. Um, throughout you know a decade and a half of study in theology, uh, so mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely beautiful. So we were thinking a little bit with with Peter Block here, and so in the spirit of Peter Block, we centered the power of questions, uh, and we asked six questions to organize our reflections. First, where do we see emerging theological expressions of giving, either within or beyond existing institutions? Second, how are leaders adapting approaches, utilizing learnings from across institutions? or alternatively, at the intersection of institutions. Third, what kind of wisdom guides adaptation? What sustains it? What needs to be left behind? Fourth, how do these expressions impact the institutional life, such as informing, expanding, limiting, or pushing the needle? And then fifth, what resources, networks, and conceptual frameworks enable individuals to innovate within existing institutions and at and beyond the edges of institutions? And then six, are there previous moments of transition and uncertainty that can provide aids and inspiration for our current thought and practice about faith and giving? Wow. I mean, there's just so much to unpack in there. Mm-hmm. And, and I love the way, actually, that the last question kind of ties back to experience and brings all of that in after the unpacking has been done of the of the future and the orientation. And i tell you right. what's coming to my mind, because usually when um, I've experienced facilitation, it's always kind of like past, present, future. Mm-hmm. But the way that you've presented this is kind of like present, future, past, and it enables... Um, a learning and understanding of what has happened, but with a mind for where you want to go. And I just like, I got to unpack that a little bit more and think, how can I put that into my own practice? Good, good, good. Yeah. Well, I love, well, look forward to to hearing how you practice it. Um, And, and one of the the real gifts of this work is that uh, we we got to learn from other individuals and communities uh, and the organizing concept for us um, and this project and for much of my other work is wisdom you know, we really were after wisdom. And as you describe um, this relationship between um, present, past, and future, uh, it, it is configured around this, this concept of wisdom. I think wisdom is the through line. You know, wisdom is what we need in the present to innovate and adapt and extend uh, care amid crisis. Wisdom is what carries us forward into the future. And wisdom is also what we can learn from the past. You know, the past at its best offers us wisdom. So we tried to capture the wisdom of this moment in a way that we could offer it and steward it and extend it to future generations. Mm. And and such a gift that you're the person that's kind of like, you know, involved in this and, and leading in it. I just think that's really, really brilliant. Thank you. It's been fun. Yeah, I bet it has. I, what What's next in terms of kind of unpacking this? Because there must be so much, you know, amazing lessons that came out of this. And and for me, it's like you do a facilitation or an appreciative inquiry or something, 
huge amount of information is then gathered. Yeah. What, what do you do? Yeah, with thank that? you. Well, you know, the, the next thing that's immediately on the horizon is um, getting, getting my book out, Adaptive Church. Uh, so that was a project that was about five years in the making um, and actually sets the table for this work on crisis and care. Um, because what I do there is I offer um, a methodology to attend to uh, the shifting organizational structures that comprise a broader ecclesial ecology. Um, so that's an extended book length university press volume um, that explores two extended case studies that are doing similar work. Uh, that project intersected with philanthropy in various ways, uh, but it didn't explore it explicitly. You know, one of the things I saw in that project is that uh, grant makers and philanthropy were also oftentimes catalysts for innovation and entrepreneurship, but I had to leave the complexity of that kind of on the table, if you will. Mm. Uh, so this project with my friend and colleague, Marion Weber Johnson, was an opportunity to pick that up um, and pick it up in a timely way where um, this crisis of imagination was inflected by matters of faith and finance. Um, after that project, we are thinking about uh, the possibility of a second volume. You know, we uh, had uh, far more material than we could capture in this kind of single lean volume. Uh, so yeah, we wanted it to be lean. We wanted it to be accessible. Uh, we organized it around this, this genre we called meditations. You know, mm -hmm. so they're only 2000 words. They're a word on point written so that you can read them in a single sitting right before bed or right when you get up or possibly between meetings. So we'd like to do something similar again, uh, just to capture the wisdom moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, and then, I mean, from there, it just extends through these collaborative networks. Uh, my colleague and I, we believe in uh, releasing and supporting um, collective capacity. Uh, so this volume was one way to do that. You know, our ongoing work will continue to do that. Uh, at Baylor University, one of the things I'm doing right now to this end is I co-direct um, a program called the Program for the Future Church, mm -hmm. uh, and it's similarly trying to uh, support and explore this conjunctive imagination that can release new possibilities for faith communities, but also those well beyond faith communities. God, I, I, I just, you know, I'm so inspired by all of the kind of different things that you're doing. And, and I suppose the question that um, it's leading me to is how do you manage it all? Because it just sounds as if you've got a lot on your plate. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. You know, I, I get up early. Uh, I, have, I have two young kids and they oftentimes uh, require getting up very early. So I'm great. I'm grateful for that. Um, and, and then I just do um, do a little bit every day. Uh, so I have, you know, various, um, you know, tools and tactics I use to to manage time. And, and I'll admit, I'm always always learning how best to do that. Uh, one of the things I have learned, however, um, is just to lead with creativity and follow creativity. Uh, as we you know, talked about at the beginning of this conversation, uh, I feel like I fell backwards into practical theology. I was just chasing questions. Mm. It wasn't particularly strategic. It wasn't particularly intentional. Um, I was just chasing questions and good conversations, and I feel like I fell backwards into that. Um, and then out of that, I've just continued by, by chasing creativity. Uh, so I go into spaces that feel like they're creative and energizing, um, I try to lead with collaboration, and I really do believe that we are better together. Mm -hmm. uh, so much of my work moving forward uh, is and will be collaborative. Uh, I try to make decisions about what I say yes to and what I say no to. Um, and then finally, I just do a little bit of, of work and writing every day uh, so that I can just maintain momentum. Uh, I mean, to return to the bike metaphor, I oftentimes think about it like, like riding a bike. 
uh, where it gets easier the more momentum you have. And if you can maintain momentum going down the hills, you're able to uh, continue that momentum moving up. Oh, I love and the that. The last thing I'll say, Sadia, is um, I try to rest. You know, I try to carve out time to rest, recover, um, spend time with family and friends. And I find that that type of rest um, renews my imagination and gives me what I need for another day. That's, that's such a, a rich kind of like share, Dustin, in that you kind of covered a whole ramet of different things. And what's really important for me is that you mentioned the concept of resting. Mm-hmm. And because a lot of people, when they're busy, kind of um, just, you know, that's the one thing that goes for me, the schedule. Um, and I think it is the most perhaps the most significant thing. I mean, there's a lot of research that speaks about sleep and how, you know, you've got to make sure that you have um, the the right amount of sleep for you. And if you don't, then it affects the way that you think and all of these other pieces. And and a few weeks ago, I started to speak about rest as a, a form of resilience and also mm-hmm. resistance and That's resistance good. against this whole kind of movement of productivity where you're supposed to be productive 24 hours a day. I just think there's mm-hmm. something, dare I say, something unholy about that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, I, I like to joke that the world doesn't need me after 930. Um, the world is fine without me after 930. And I'm happy to rest and uh, shut down, turn screens off uh, and just get some good sleep. Mm. You also mentioned something about kind of like saying no to projects so that you can say yes to things that are important. What is your advice for people who are trying to say no? I think it's critically important to think about, you know, think about the values. You know, what are the values that guide guide your work? Um, so one of the values for me is, is collaboration. I believe in, in collaboration. I think it's um, the... The future of religious leadership. Um, I think it's the future of organizational leadership. Uh, I think it's the future of um, academic discourse. Uh, it's a collaborative mode and we need to lead and move into a more collaborative mode and posture. Um, so collaboration is one of my values. I oftentimes say yes to collaboration. Um, I think there's also um, an importance of thinking about the various time horizons. Uh, so I oftentimes think, what am I saying yes to within particular time horizons? Um, and if I don't have the capacity, I don't have the bandwidth, I don't have the creative energy within the time horizon, I think that work will be required. I'll either say no, or I'll say no, not right now. Mm, not yet. I just don't have the capacity. Um, and that's in the spirit of trying to protect creativity. You know, creativity is one of the values that is energizing for me. Um, so I have to do what I can to protect creativity. Um, and the final value I'll mention um, is just family. Uh, so I have to make, we have to make decisions about who our people are and whether that's an immediate family or a broader kind of more porous collective family. I think we um, do a disservice to our people, whoever they are, when we say yes to things that take us away of extending care, connection, belonging to uh, those that are dearest and nearest to us. Mm, I I just love the way that you've unpacked all of that because I think mm-hmm. um, as you were describing collaboration, it actually took me to an um, uh, a facilitation event that I attended maybe about six months ago when we were asked to unpack our values. Wow. And, 
And for me, it, it came as a real surprise, I'll be honest with you, because, you know, you just think your values are supposed to be, you know, honesty and trustworthiness and all of this. Number one that came for me was collaboration. And I, I had to sp- then spend a few days after just unpacking why is that so significant for me? Mm-hmm. And I think as you're describing it and speaking about, you know, collaboration within the church and collaboration academically, etc., I was also kind of thinking... There is something significant at a kind of, you know, um, foundational level for us collaborating as humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's that piece because we were speaking before we kind of went live with the podcast about um, how uh, a, a lot of the focus has been on difference. And I think that I'd like to see focus on similarity. And, yeah. and I think that then builds and engenders um love and connection and collaboration and i think you just approach things in a different way right right right. yeah it it gives us a new way of seeing you know when we Mm -hmm. see uh, that we belong to each other uh versus i mean not that it invisibilizes um particularity and difference but it's a different kind of entry point into connection i love that yeah, and I, and I think that's the key because, you know, I, I think, you know, when we come to the conversation around diversity and equity and inclusion and other things, everyone is different. Right? right. But but I think that when we focus on the difference, it can be divisive. Mm. And, and in the work that I'm doing, I think, you know, all of the the, the kind of languaging that we've had and, and the work in the DEI space that has got us to where we are has been incredibly important and significant I just think it's time for a different language and, and a different approach. Mm-hmm. You know? So we need new language. Mm, absolutely. And, and and also maybe that some of that comes out of the work of Peter Block and, um, you know, the way of asking questions and things, because I think the reason I fell into coaching was primarily because of curiosity. And mm. so it does come back to that connection with you, Dustin, in terms of, you know, questions and just framing them in a particular way that is very open and broad and and brings in a huge amount of information rather than closing things off. Right. That's good. It's invitational, right? Like that's what we need in this moment is we need invitations into these spaces, invitations to collaborations, invitations to bring ourselves into these conversations. And that's, I think that's where possibility emerges when we extend invitations rather than prescription. Mm, absolutely so some of the listeners are facilitators and coaches and so this piece on questions is really significant for them so i would love to ask you how do you go about finding a good question oh wow that is such a good question uh well you know i um wow i it takes time you know that that's the first thing i'd say um and it oftentimes um, first kind of emerges out of my own curiosity. Um, you know, it's it's this uh, this lingering curiosity. You know, it's kind of this this question that won't let me go. Um, so oftentimes, I try to attend to and listen to those. Um, it's also also oftentimes something that emerges in conversation. Um, so oftentimes, test questions with with various friends or colleagues. Or conversation partners. Um, in the case of this project, Crisis and Care, you know that's something that um, that Aaron Weber Johnson and I developed collaboratively. So we would kind of test and refine those questions. 
Um, in the case of, of the work that I've done in the Pacific Northwest, you know, I tested a survey instrument, I tested an energy guide, um, and was thankful to get some helpful feedback from people about those. Um, and then there's kind of a final element where it feels like there's some wisdom um, that comes to it. You know, after asking these type of community-based questions that are oriented towards the transformation and new imagination, you just kind of get a sensibility for it. You just kind of learn what are the questions that can release new possibility. Um, and then the final thing I'll say, Sadia, is that oftentimes it emerges from listening. You know, first listening to local communities, listening to local leaders, listening to the everyday ordinary experience, and then listening to the people that I'm engaged in conversation with. I cannot tell you how many times I've been sitting down with a faith leader or a community leader, um, interviewing them. You know, we've had um, a recorder in hand and just sitting down having a conversation. And they'll say something like this. They'll say something like, oh, by the way, and this is a moment where I know like they're breaking script. <laughs> by the way, this is just an aside. But without fail, the most insightful, the most hopeful, um, the most transformative part of our conversation will often come in the by the way. Mm. So I've learned to sit up. I've learned to listen. And then I learned to invite just a little bit more in those spaces. Because so oftentimes people don't recognize the new imagination, the new language, the new possibility they have until they're prompted to explore it. Mm. So I oftentimes invite people to explore the new imagination they already have, but it's just waiting to be uncovered right beneath the surface. Oh, I just really love that. Because for me, what I heard is you're listening in a level that is just much higher than the usual vibrance or vibration mm -hmm. of listening. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a brilliant article by um, a lady called Annalise, and I, I've forgotten her surname. It begins with B in the Guardian newspaper, where mm -hmm. she's a therapist. And she, um, when she started her work, she said, you know, I put together a team of therapists and I'm just going to share with you the lessons that I've learned through my work. And I'll link to it in the show notes. And um, the key lesson is about the quality of listening. And mm -hmm. as a coach, I very much am an advocate for exploring different ways of listening. So what you kind of said, the paying attention to what comes after the by the way, because sometimes people are just going to ignore that. And it's mm -hmm. just you, you've missed the education and the learning and all of those possibilities that could come. That's right. That's right. And just to unpack this a wee bit further, um, in the article in The Guardian, what they were saying is that, um, especially for teenagers, what they will do is when they have something important to speak about, they'll come to you when you're washing up or when you're driving or driving or when you're doing something entirely mundane because they just want to slip it in so that you've heard the message but actually you're busy doing something else and it kind of um it, it kind of removes the detonator pin out of the grenade. Does that make sense? Totally you know? does. Yeah. Totally and I does. think it's just this piece about listening is something that I think we can all do more of, regardless of whether you're in positive psych or practical theology and positive psychology or organizational development or anything else. Just learn to listen more. That's good. That's good. You know, it reminds me of um, what, uh, what Sharon Park says. 
as you were, were talking about this article from The Guardian, it brought to mind you know, her language, how she describes this posture of listening as, as listening to the music beneath the words. You know, so there's this this posture of listening to the resonance, the harmony um, that is there, that's just waiting to be uncovered, uh, but people and communities just haven't yet made the connection. Um, and Sharon Parks is somebody that I've I've learned a fair bit from over the years, and I'm just so grateful for her presence, her posture, her attentiveness to what's already going on, and then surfacing that and making it evident to people and communities. Mm. And yeah, and sometimes the communication comes in other ways. You know, it just doesn't even come through words. It comes through right. um, uh, the expressions on the face or through the noises that people make. And I kind of sometimes think that that's, uh, that's your soul speaking. That's good. Yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah. Mm. You, know, you know, one of the things that I'm mindful we, we, haven't, we haven't chatted about yet in this conversation that, that I feel like is really important and, and listening um, and this type of, of inquiry within local communities is the importance of trust. Mm. Um, that's, you know, that's something that whenever I walk into a room or whenever I'm engaged um, in conversation with, with a leader or community of every kind, um, I'm mindful that, that trust is on the table. You know, they've, they've extended some trust to me in inviting me into this space. And every time they speak, they are... Um, asking the question, can I trust you? Can I trust you in this space? Can I trust you with my words? And then when I write about them, when I share about them, you know, this question of trust is on the table. Uh, so in any spaces, uh, whether it's an official interview, a collaborative project, or, you know, some informal encounter, uh, I'm mindful that that trust really is the key. Um, and it's the structure of community. Without trust, uh, we don't have belonging. We don't have possibility. We don't have imagination. But if we can have trust, if we can cultivate it, new things really are possible. Yeah, and such a, an eloquent way of kind of describing that because I absolutely agree. I think that the minute that um, trust is gone, it just mm -hmm. makes everything so much harder. And if one of your values is collaboration and you don't have the trust, then it's just going to appear superficial um, whereas when you go in through the angle of trust and you're able to kind of make yourself vulnerable and put yourself on the table just as much as anyone else, see that the kind of gifts that you're going to get out of that work, that's just priceless. Yeah. Mm. So I, I would love to know, what is your advice for people on how they can build trust? Mm. Another great question. You know, I would say... Uh, recognize that it takes time. You know, trust emerges um, over an extended period of time. When I was uh, doing my work on, on um, collaborative, um, collaborative approaches to religious education, organizational leadership in the Pacific Northwest, uh, one of the things that I saw is that um, the trust that was required to take these collaborative risks together um, emerged over multiple years or multiple decades. Um, so that was honestly a revelation for me about how long it takes to build the trust that is required to take these adaptive entrepreneurial risks. You know, it doesn't happen overnight. It can't be fabricated or manufactured. It takes time. Um, and the second thing I would say is it takes, it takes proximity, um, oftentimes physical, relational proximity. 
so for example, when, when I was trying to do this work in the Pacific Northwest, uh, I was located in Durham, North Carolina, but I made multiple trips to and from the region, you know, across the states, did multiple red eyes to and from Seattle to Durham, North Carolina, um, primarily to build trust. You know, I would show up, I would you know, be in coffee shops, I would meet one-on-one -on -one with various leaders. Um, and one of the things I was trying to do in those conversations was build trust. And over time, as we built trust together, we began to explore new possibilities. Um, and then I would also say it, it emerges as we bring ourselves and name our values into the room. Um, we really need to uh, be able to name the values that guide our work and govern the way that we engage. So I think for individuals and communities, as we're able to name those and name those in ways that are invitational um, rather than erecting barriers, I think that is actually a way to build trust because then we're able to see these are the values that we have in common. These are the spaces that we can work together. And these are the various ways that we might have meaningful differences. Those differences don't necessarily have to be barriers to trust, rather they can actually build towards trust. Um, and then the final thing I would say for my work in network theory is don't overlook the power of connections in common. Uh, one of the things that I've learned from studying networks and collaborative organizations is that people are more inclined to trust one another if they have a connection in common. So, so often people will be able to partner together and build trust more quickly if they have a shared friend or colleagues. Uh, so have an ability to see the networks, have the ability to see the connections and ask questions about those networks so that we can build trust, but also build networks that are stitched together by trust. Mm, I love everything that you've shared. And, and I think that the, this piece about networks, I kind of learned that quite late. Because um, mm. as I was kind of, you know, in, in my career in local government, there was just a lot of nepotism. And I decided I didn't want to engage with that. And I'm, I mean, I'm pleased that I didn't. But actually, the, the kind of side result of that was that I didn't build enough of a network and really understand this relationships um, description that you're giving, because it's absolutely right. I mean, one of the, the, the biggest um, and most amazing revelations for me about this podcast and how I've been able to put it together is that people have connected me with others just because I've asked them to. And that person knows of another connection that we have and so it's just you kind of create currency through it and I, and I don't mean that in a, in a in a bad way I actually think it's really good because you're able to demonstrate your value in a number of different ways so it's knowing your values being able to articulate it and then also create value for the person that you're meeting before you've even met them that's good yeah fantastic I love it and I just wanted to say, if anyone's listening and they want to work out what their own values are, then if you go to the book Results, the Art and Science of Getting It Done, there's a whole chapter in there that helps you to unpack how you can uh, determine your own values, uh, how you can work out family values and how you can start to communicate that as well. Um, because I think it's really important to know what you stand for and, and be able to articulate that. I have a I have a a big question for you if if I may, which yeah. is um and again building on trust, 
how do you um how do you trust yourself oh wow hmm. yeah so i i feel like i am more willing and able to trust myself uh when i recognize that i'm not alone um, so, so my particular uh, religious tradition suggests that individuals um, find their proper humanness, not in isolation, but in community. Um, that is to say that we are properly human only when we are individuals in community. Mm. Um, and that would be individuals hyphen in hyphen community. Um, that it's a single form of existence. It's a single form of anthropology. It's a certain way of being such that we only find who we are in relation to others. Um, so I distrust myself when I find that I'm sliding into postures and practices that feel like they're closing up and closing me off from others. Um, that are closing me off from collaboration, that are preventing me from having a generous spirit. Uh, but when I'm able to assume a posture, an invitational posture, a faithful posture, a hospitable posture that opens me up to others, that opens me up to individuals, that is taking the risk of living a more permeable, porous life, mm -hmm. it's then that I'm more willing to trust myself because A, I recognize that I'm not alone, and B, I recognize that my particular way of life is properly lived in relation to others and for others. Uh, so I think that posture enables me to trust myself um, and trust the creative process that emerges from that work and that posture. Mm, I love that. And and I, if I'm allowed to add also, and then trust the creator, you know. Mm, yes. Who, yes, yes. And, everything that you shared I can relate to and and if, if you know one thing that's really kind of front of mind for me right now is that there is a story once of somebody who was hiding in a cave and um he was asked um I think by the prophet Muhammad peace and blessings upon him like you know you, you're in the cave why are you doing this and he said well you know if I'm by myself then I'm not interacting with other human beings so I sin less and the, the kind of the lesson that was learned in the unpacking of that is that actually you are not meant to live by yourself. Yes, we, we may kind of have more challenges that we face because of human interaction with other people. But actually, as a result of that, yeah, you know, one can have a whole long conversation about whether it's, you know, your faith is tested or all of these other things. But you're then living the life that you're meant to because you're in connection with other human beings. And, and in my faith tradition, we, we were not born to be alone. We right. were born to get to know each other. And there's even a verse in the Quran that says, we created you into nations and tribes so that you can get to know one another. Now, if that's not an instruction to kind of like collaborate and get to know other people, I don't know what is. Right, right, right. It's pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would love to ask you, what is your favorite book? Oh, what is my favorite book of all time or yeah. today? Well, 
I think all time might be quite hard, but go on, let's give it for today. Yeah. Well, I'll share, um, I'll share the book that that continues to stir my imagination. Um, it's actually one of the books I use uh, use in my classes uh, when I when I teach. I teach a class called called Leadership for Ministry. I'll teach it this semester again, uh, and I, I use a novel in there by Marilyn Robinson. It's called Home. Um, so Marilyn Robinson is uh, an American novelist who writes um, writes about the ordinary. You know, writes about the ordinary lived experiences of a certain community in Gilead, Iowa, uh, which is just a small agricultural farming town on the plains. I mean, nothing spectacular or shiny about it. Uh, but, but the story she tells there is a story where tragedy and possibility meet and mingle in the ordinary spaces of our lives. You know, it tells the story of a young woman, her name's Glory, who life has not gone as she planned. You know, she had a particular trajectory and then she comes home and finds that her father is ailing and um, her brother, who is kind of the prodigal, um, is coming home. And it's this space of, of connection, belonging, possibility, where loss, grief, care, creativity, all meet and mingle together wow. in these ordinary spaces. Um, and I think that's the story of our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, we each live, you know, pretty ordinary lives, no matter what we do, no matter if we're an executive or a professor or a teacher or a school teacher or a therapist or a stay-at-home parent. Mm-hmm. We all live pretty ordinary lives. Um, for me, it's a reminder of the ways in which each of our stories includes these pockets of grief, tragedy, loss, belonging, creativity, all at once in a single story. Wow. And, and I think what you've said actually in some ways describes practical theology. Because right. for me, practical theology is the story of the ordinary. It's uh, right. looking at, you know, where does God turn up in all the small little things and just being observant of some of that. Okay. Um, just kind of like generally, what are you reading, listening or watching right now? Mm. Uh, I am reading, um, Marilyn Ro- rereading Marilyn Robertson's um, Pulitzer Prize novel, Gilead. Mm-hmm. Um, I am... Um, rereading some texts from my class. Um, Patrick Reyes's The Purpose Gap, L. Gregory Jones, um, Resurrecting Excellence. Uh, I'm also reading and rereading a fair bit of my book right now, Adaptive Church, as I try to get that off to the press. Uh, so that's <laughs> occupying a fair bit of my creative time uh, as I try to get that out by the end of the month. Yeah, I think we both have imminent deadlines, don't we, <laughs> in different ways. Good. I am grateful for them. Um, in terms of listening, you know, I am, um, you know, I have had uh, Lynn Manuel's Miranda's uh, Hamilton on repeat for the last 18 months. Um, listening to The Heights a little bit. Mm-hmm. I listen to a fair bit of cello music. Um, I watch a good bit of the Olympics these days uh, and also some good 90s comedy, uh, which for me is, is the television show Friends. <laughs> it's so funny. My daughter's watching that at the moment. And she's, oh, I love it. Uh, yeah, and she's just absolutely loving. It. In fact, she's binge watched it once, and she's on her second viewing. Oh, there you go. That's a good <laughs> yeah. 
Um, what advice do you have for me and for the listeners? Hmm. Well, I would say um, first, you know, continue doing doing the work that only you can do. You know, I am mindful that for you, Sadia, and for likely various various of your listeners, uh, you're engaged in the work that you're doing um, because of a sense of purpose. You're trying to do work that matters, whether because you're trying to care for individuals, you're trying to care for communities, or you're trying to work towards some particular transformation. Um, so I would recognize that this is work that only you can do. And I would invite you and others to only do the work that only you uniquely are able to do. There's lots of work that needs to be done in this moment. There's lots of crises that need to be attended to. However, for each of us, I think we each have a project or a set of projects that we're uniquely able and situated to do. Um, so I would invite each of us to explore what that is and then get to work doing that project mm -hmm. instead of something else. Because somebody else can pick up the other projects but there's only one or two projects that you can do at this moment. Mm. And the second thing I would say is um, continue to lean into connection, collaboration, and partnership. Uh, one of the things I am paying attention to as so many individuals and communities uh, try to rise out of this you know, pandemic moment is what do collaborative partnerships look like? You know, we've been able to connect across various um, divides of distance and time in this moment. And as we move forward, I think we have the need to tend to those partnerships, to mm -hmm. become physically proximate in a new way. So I would invite people to extend care to these connections, to extend care to these networks, to extend care to these new collaborators that you've encountered. Um, and then third and finally, I would say, don't overlook the importance of rest. I know for so many of us, we have been uh, moving at a rather frantic and breathless pace. Uh, and as a expression of hospitality to ourselves and to the various communities we serve, uh, I think we would be wise to uh, carve out some space for rest, recovery, renewal, um, disconnection from digital spaces so that we can get back to doing the good work that we're called to for many years to come. Wow, such good advice and and what a gift it has been to to speak with you and to be able to benefit from your wisdom. Mm. If, if listeners would like to follow up and, you know, purchase your books or just find a little bit more about what you're doing, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so Twitter is a good option, um, at Dustin D. Bennett. Uh, you can also follow me um, at my website, www.dustindbennett.com. Uh, you can sign up for my newsletter there, um, and that's a way to receive uh, periodic updates from me about my work. Um, or I'd also say reach out. You know, we are in a moment where we're making new connections and we're making new collaborations. Uh, so I always love, love hearing from readers always love hearing from people who are doing this work around the world um, and know that if there's a way that I can support you, your work, your ministry in any way, um, I'd love to engage in a conversation about that. I love that. Thank you so much, Dustin. Um, I personally, I feel as if my life is 
much richer because you are in it. So I want mm-hmm. to thank you for that and thank you for this conversation and hope that it is the beginning of one of multiple conversations that we'll be having. Yeah, so my, my life is much richer as well. Thanks for your hospitality. Thanks for your curiosity. Uh, it's really been a joy. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of With Sayada, I'd appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people find out about the podcast and the work of the Centre for Belonging and Understanding.